Well, I hate to admit this, but six or seven months ago, I got a speeding ticket. My wife and I were driving on a country road and just kind of relaxing and enjoying the scenery, the beautiful scenery. And then all of a sudden, I, I had that moment. Maybe you've had it, or maybe you're much, much, much more responsible drivers than I am. And you just, you see out of the corner of your eye, tucked away, a police car. And uh, I realized uh, as I was getting my ticket and after I got my ticket, because to be honest with you, I felt awful after that. And I was like, why do I feel so bad? It's not that big a deal. Um, but I realized pretty much everything about that experience made me feel out of control. And I hated that. So first, you're driving along the road, and all of a sudden, you see the police car tucked out, uh, just out, out of the way, right? And you realize in that split second what you did not realize before, which is, oh yeah, I'm driving a little bit too fast. And if you're like me, you slam on the brakes real quickly and try and get right back into the speed limit. But of course, if you've already seen the police car, you know that it's too late. You have no control over that. If you've seen them, they've already seen you. And so you have that little momentary dread of, is that police car there because they're watching for people who are speeding or not? Are they going to come after me or not? And at that point, you know it's too late. You're already out of control. And then you pass by them and you're looking in your rearview mirror and you're watching behind you and you see them pull out and then the lights go on. And now this is a little embarrassing because we have to do this at like a show in front of everybody else. Now we have lights flashing and you know that you don't really have a choice. I mean, technically you have a choice and what to do in that matter, but you really don't have a choice. There's no good options other than you've got to pull over. And so you pull over and then you sit there for a couple of minutes and you wait for the police officer to come to your window. And so in this case, the police officer comes to the window and she's got her whole uniform on, of course. And the uniform reminds you that she has authority over you. You don't have control. That person has the power in this relationship and it's been given to them by the government. And again, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. Uh, you are now at the mercy of this person who can choose to be lenient towards you or can choose to not be lenient towards you. They could just let you go with a warning or they could give you a ticket. In my case, they gave me a ticket. And then you look at this person and you realize that, that even in how, they're, not just how they're dressed, but in what they're equipped with, again, you are out of control. They have this little radio that reminds you, again, not that this is a good option or that we would decide to do this, but reminds you if you're going to make, like, if you're going to book it, make a run for it, then they've got a little radio to make sure they can call other police officers and it's not going to be long before a whole bunch of them come and get you. You don't really have much of a chance there. You're stuck there, again, at the mercy of, of what they're going to do. They've got weapons, which seems a little extreme in a traffic stop, but I understand why they have them. But she's got a gun on her hip, this very powerful weapon that can do major damage in one little instance, handcuffs, just in case, right? And so you're sitting there thinking, again, not that these are good options or that you think of doing this, but if I was going to run for it or be aggressive, this person is prepared for that. They have the authority and they have a lot of power in this situation. I am out of control. And so they ask you for your license and your registration and your insurance and you're, you're rifling through the glove compartment and oh, whatever, I got to give you everything that you want. And they look through all the stuff and then they go back to their car. And again, you're sitting there thinking, I have no control over what they're going to do. They could throw the book at me and give me the worst fine that there is. I could get to merit points uh, that are going to affect my insurance, blah, 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 blah. And then they come back up. And I don't know, 
again, you may be much more responsible drivers than I have been in the last year. But I don't know if you've got a ticket recently, but now they actually print out, they have little printers in the car, and they print out these tickets that are on, it's almost like receipt paper, like if you're at the grocery store and you get a receipt, it's like thin but long. And so she comes up to give me a ticket, and she, here's your ticket, and it's like this long. It's like the longest thing I've ever seen. And I'm like, what is on here? Like what, written every little bad thing I've ever done in my life to make me feel guilty? Why do you need this much receipt paper to tell me that I was speeding? But the entire experience, again, what I think I I disliked most about it was feeling just out of control. Right from that second where you realize I'm going too fast and someone's going to catch me and I feel out of control. Now think about this. Most of us have moments in our lives, some are small, some are much bigger, where we feel powerless, where we feel out of control of our lives. And the emotions that can go with that can range from mild, mildly annoying, oh, I wish someone else was acting a different way, treating me better, to very severe, I am anxious, I am worried, I am frustrated, I am angry, I am struggling with how life is going, and one of my core problems is that I don't know how to solve my problems, I don't know how to get through this, I don't know how to change the things that are wrong in my life or in the world. And there's all kinds of different areas of our lives where we might feel this powerlessness, which leads to some of those really uh, negative and sometimes uh, really debilitating emotions. If you're a parent, you've probably felt this. Because in, in fact, that's pretty much what parenthood is all about, is over time you're losing control. And in different phases of, of life, that looks different. But if you're a parent, you can realize even from young ages, there's things that you are just not in control of. Oh, I didn't think this would happen. Oh, I'm trying to change their behavior. Oh, I wish this didn't happen. Oh, I'm sending them out of the house and I don't know what they're going to encounter in the world. I don't know what their circumstances are going to be like. I don't know how people are going to treat them. I don't know the decisions they're going to make. And most of us as parents, we're hoping, I want my kids to have a good life. I want them to make smart decisions. I want them to do well in life, be a productive citizen. I want them to treat themselves well and treat other people well. And yet, you probably realize, even if you're a parent of a fairly young child, I have a couple of young kids, and it's like right from the get-go, you realize there's all kinds of things that you're out of control in. And man, that can be a, a really, really tough emotion to realize I'm, I mean, I'm powerless, right? Like I think sometimes it, my kids, uh, again, they're young. And so uh, if they're not doing what I want them to do at this point, I, I still have enough authority and power physically. I can pick them up and move them somewhere else. I can take them to their room physically, but I know there will come a time and a place where I no longer have that kind of power and authority. In fact, it's going to kind of dwindle over time. And eventually there's going to come a point where my kids leave the house and all the power that I once had will be gone. And again, it doesn't take that long for those of us who are parents. There's stuff all the way from from when they're little kids uh, that remind us that we're just not totally in control. That can be really hard. Might be in your marriage where um, you've hit a tough spot and you thought, I never thought that I'd be here. And maybe my spouse is not acting the way that I thought my spouse was going to act. And I didn't think they were going to behave this way, or I'm having trust issues, or they're having trust issues with me. And now I I thought we would have a a very predictable marriage, but that's not how it's happening. And I feel kind of out of control of that. And I'm only one half of the equation. And so I might even feel out of control of myself, but I'm definitely out of control of what, what, what my spouse does. 
Some of us have those behaviors where we feel out of control. Oh, I'm living my life and I'm, I'm stuck in a, a pattern that I didn't want to get into, but I don't know how to get in, out of it. Or I'm struggling with an addiction and I don't know how to beat it. And I'm frustrated with that. I feel like I don't have any power in that area of our lives. Some of us, maybe it's economic or financial. I'm struggling with job security or what's going on in the company or my business. And that's adding all this stress because I don't see how this is going to work its way out or there are problems that seem too big for me and I just, I don't know how to make all the pieces fit and, and so I'm worried about that. I'm stressed about that. Maybe it's coworkers or employers or employees that you wish you were in control of, but you're not in control of them and so you feel like you have no power in that area. And then, of course, there's world events. There's things like, um, you know, what's happening in Afghanistan. You are heartbreaks for that and I have no control over what's happening in that part of the world. Or COVID restrictions is a little closer to home and maybe you're just absolutely fed up with, with how things are going and what's going to happen next and you have maybe a strong opinion on what should happen and yet you don't have control or power over what the restrictions are or they aren't, whether things open up faster or slower. Could be climate change. Man, I'm worried about what's happening to our planet, but I'm just one person and could, do I make a difference? And I, man, and, and this sense of powerlessness feeling like we're out of control can be a really hard thing for so many of us to deal with. And the kind of emotions that it leads to, or some of the pitfalls that it leads to, behaviors that it could lead to, is if we get stuck feeling powerless, we often try to use um, less than healthy methods to make us feel like we're in control again. So I'm, I'm trying to gain some control over my situation. And if I can't do it in a healthy way, I might try and do it in a healthy way, unhealthy way. So some of us become very overbearing. Right? If we go back to the example about parents and children, I, man, I feel like I'm out of control. And so I need to make sure I control everything about my kid's life. Or we become really, really anxious because it's so hard for us to, to wrap our heads. If I'm not in control, things could all fall apart. Everything could go wrong. And we worry and we worry and we worry. Sometimes we get really pushy for other people. We want to change them and change how they behave. We want them to rise up to our expectations. We want them to fix a problem that maybe we have. We get manipulative sometimes. If I, if I can't ha- get my way or, or uh, have somebody do what I need them to do, then maybe there's a way I can manipulate. I can be deceptive. Uh, I can trick them. I can, I can do something that's less than honest or full of integrity to try and get other people to do what I want them to do. We can feel angry. We can feel frustrated. We can feel stuck. And a lot of that comes back to the fact that we just, we love to be in control. People love to be in control and feeling powerless or out of control is such a difficult thing for many of us to bear. And yet, if you live in the real world, you're going to experience the fact that you're not in control. There are going to be circumstances. There's going to be people. There's going to be things that we encounter that we simply cannot control. And so what I want to talk about in this message is what does it look like to, to really live powerful lives? Can we live powerful lives? Do we have any power in a world where we are often out of control? And to do that, I want to continue talking about uh, Ephesians. We've been working through the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. We're in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to finish off that chapter today. And we've started to talk in this series the last couple of weeks about, about grace, about how this is how God operates He operates not in a I give you what you deserve type of economy, but he offers us more than we deserve and he gives us more than we deserve. He helps us more than um, more than we deserve to be helped. In fact, our entire lives are built around this, the the, the pace of grace, what we're calling this series, uh, the idea that everything that we have, everything, everything, every breath that we have, 
every day that we have, everything that we have, every one that we have is a gift of God. It is grace in our lives. And so now I want to talk about um, power and what real power is. Because in Ephesians, we're going to get to this point where it's emphasized the power that's actually working in us, that's available to us. And I want you to know that real true power is exercised in surrender. And that's what I want to talk about tonight, but it's completely counterintuitive. See, most of us in our striving for control or power, use those kind of interchangeably in this message, but to try and gain control or to have power in our lives, we often want to seize it. Sometimes we want to lord it over other people. And so we find all kinds of different ways in our lives to do that. And yet, what I will say today is true power is actually exercised in surrender. And the obvious uh, objection to that is saying, hold on a second, if I surrender, isn't that giving up power? Isn't that giving up control? Isn't that giving up authority? And that is the paradoxical answer to which I would say, yes, it is. And if we're going to live in the pace of grace, if we're going to live in the way of Jesus, we will find that his call is to follow him and to say, if you want to truly experience and exercise power, you must surrender. So here we go. Ephesians chapter 1. We start in verse 15. This is following what we uh, read last week, uh, where Paul is talking about uh, spiritual blessings, uh, the inheritance that is available for those who follow Jesus, the purpose uh, that, that God has for us. And in verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So this is amazing. He starts by saying, and this is uh, evidence that he, he probably, as he's writing this letter, doesn't um, personally know the people he's writing to. It's probably a, a widely circulated letter in the churches in the region where Ephesus is. And he said, but I've heard of your faith, and I've heard of the love that you have for other people in the faith, and so I'm giving thanks for you, I'm praying for you. And then he talks about God giving him this title, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. So just bringing some context, because there are a lot of gods that other people might follow, and what kind of God are we talking about, and how do we know what he's like, and all the rest of it. Well, let's start here. He's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, our Lord, he's the one that uh, we're following. He's the one that we take our cues from. He's the one that shows us who God is in this context. He is the anointed one. We talked a lot about that last week. You can go back and watch that message if, if you want to uh, get more into what the Christ means, the anointed one means. And he is the one that Jesus calls Father and the Father of glory, the Father of fame, the Father of we are in awe of this God. And the prayer here is that you would have a spirit of wisdom it's practical knowledge in how to live, and revelation in the knowledge of him, or that it would be revealed to you to know him better. Isn't that a powerful statement right there? We're talking about power. How powerful it is that you would know the Father of glory even better, that you would have an intimacy with him. And here, knowledge isn't just a head knowledge. It is an experiential knowledge. It's that you would know what it's like to live in the way of God, the Father of glory the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Revelation comes from a word where we get our word apocalypse from, and a lot of times you might uh, think about apocalypse or hear the word apocalypse, and we, oftentimes we think about like a movie, an apocalyptic movie, and we think about the end of the world, but apocalypse just means revelation. It's that you're, you're seeing something that you didn't see before. So we have apocalyptic books in the Bible, like the book of Revelation, for example. Again, a lot of people assume the whole thing's about the end of the world, but really what it is is a revelation. It is a, an uncovering of a spiritual reality that we didn't see before. Uh, and really, that's what Revelation is, is, is looking at uh, the spiritual reality behind what people were experiencing in the first century. There's a lot to it. We won't get into it today. But here, this is an apocalypse for us. It's a revelation. It's a, I want you to see something and experience something more about who God is, to live in his grace, to live in the way of God, to live, we'll see in a few minutes, in his power. And I want you to see something that you didn't see before. And maybe that'll happen for you through this message as we read through this really powerful text and to know him more. Man, if there's a God of the universe, if there's a creator and sustainer, which means if there's a God who actually put this universe together and he has ordered the way it's best to live in it, wouldn't you love to know more about him? Practically speaking, experientially speaking, yes, intellectually speaking, of course, I want to know more about what it's like to live the best possible way you can live. That would be a powerful way to live and to do that, to know him more. I want to know that God more. What's he like? Because what he's like is going to translate into what we all ought to be like, how we will live in harmony in this universe and together. So in that vein of the revelation, there are three, th- three things, a threefold enlightenment that this knowledge uh, that he wants to bring out for us. What are the three things he wants to know, wants us to know, or to be revealed to us? Verse 18 has the first one. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. So again, for them, for us, the heart is often, we, we metaphorically talk about our heart as the seat of emotion. But for first century Jewish people, it'd be more decision making. It'd be more, this is how I'm living, and a little bit more about our, their thoughts and their intellect. Um, so having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, so that we would, again, see something we haven't seen before, that you may know, number one, the hope to which he has called you. So here's the first thing that Paul wants to be revealed to us is the hope that God's calling brings. Hope means you are not where you want to be now, but that is not it. There is more. There is a future. There is something better. Hope reminds us that if I'm living in a circumstance that's difficult, where I'm suffering, where I'm hurting, where I'm powerless, where I'm out of control, where circumstances seem overwhelming, where I just can't bear it anymore, hope says this is not all that there is. There is hope. You have a future. And this is connected to what we talked about last week, the hope in our calling, that we are called to be gods, that he is with us, he's always with us, and that he therefore gives us a future. There is something good for us. And some of us, we've been so stuck in in struggles and hurts and pains for so long, one of the hardest parts of being in a real struggle, a real hurt, is thinking this is going to last forever. This is my life. It doesn't get better. I'm going to always struggle with this. I'm always going to feel this way. I'm always going to be under the weight of this. Hope says that's not true. God has a future for you. And I hope that even today in this message, some of you might realize God has given me hope that your heart might be enlightened to the hope that God has given you as his child, as his beloved, as his chosen one. 
Number two, continuing that verse, he says, uh, what are, this is the second thing, the riches of his glorious inheritance to the saints. So the second thing that he wants to be revealed to us, he's praying would be revealed to us, is the wealth of God's glorious inheritance for his people. We talked a lot about this last week, so I'm not going to belabor it. Um, but what does that mean? Uh, it, it means that God is recreating the heavens and the earth. He's making all things right. Even when it doesn't seem like that, God is restoring all things. The inheritance of those who follow Jesus is we get to participate in the new heavens and the new earth. We get to participate in the process now as things are being restored, as we live lives of love and reconciliation. And we get to be part of that in the future when God will totally bring all things together in harmony and he will wipe away all of the evil and all of the suffering and all of the hurt and all things will be brought back into harmony God is bringing all things back into rights and the inheritance of those who are found in Jesus is that we get to be part of that. And it connects with our first point, with hope. Hope of a future. Hope that things get better. Hope that God is bringing everything that's wrong back into rights. And then we come to the third thing. And this is where I want to park for a few minutes in this message and talk more about. Verse 19 says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The third thing that this prayer is for us to to be enlightened to, to have revealed, is the power that is at work towards us. The immensity of that power. Let me talk about that for a second. In verse 19, in the first couple of lines there, there's four words that essentially mean the exact same. They don't mean the exact same thing. They mean pretty much the the same thing. There's a lot of overlap, um, but four different words. And so, again, this is sort of characteristic. We talked about it last week. The entire passage, 11 verses we talked about last week in Greek are all one sentence. It's like somebody is sitting there going, I just got to get all this out. I don't have time for a comma or a period. There it is. Same thing is true with this passage. It's all one, one, one sentence. It all runs together. And when he talks about power here, he just uses four different words trying to express. I can barely tell you how powerful the power is. In fact, we could translate it. This would be a bad way to translate it because it doesn't read very well. But technically, you could translate this verse. And what is the immeasurable power of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his powerful power? What's the point? Power. There's power here but there's four different words. Again, the point is not to dissect the four different words and say, what's all the differences? Although they're slightly different in how they might be translated, but to realize, oh, I get it. Power. He wants us to understand and have revealed to us, have our hearts enlightened to this kind of power. So the first one, greatness, um, it could refer to vastness or the scope of the power. So how wide, how big, Second word, which is translated here, power, uh, comes from the Greek word um, where we get our word dynamite. And it's a word that is often used for a manifestation of a power. Sometimes it's used, uh, oftentimes actually, it's used to speak of the powerful miracles that Jesus did. It's like dynamite, something that can really make a difference and affect change really quickly. Um, the next one, which is translated great, could be mighty or a force or a strength. 
And then the last one translated here, might, again, could be translated strength or ability or faculty. It's actually the word that Jesus used when he teaches us how we should love God with all of our strength, all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, with our faculties, with our ability, with everything that we can muster, with our energy. But here again, the point, not necessarily to take those four words and to dissect them and say, oh, a little different, a little different, but to say, man, that we would understand the power of God toward us. Just so, so powerful. Now, why? Why does this have to be reminded to us? Like, why, why would someone have to write this? I want you to be enlightened to this. Why wouldn't it be obvious? Why wouldn't we just know the power of God toward us? I think it's because of this. We are addicted to fast and flashy. That's what we think power is, fast and flashy. Right? I'm thinking now flashing police car lights. Power. Or a gun. It's loud. It's powerful. It's fast. In a flash, you could take somebody's life with a gun. And we have now translated that that is what power is like. And therefore, we go out into the world. Do you know what ends up happening? We say, I have no power. I have no control. Because we often lack fast and flashy. Our problems don't get solved right away. We come to a circumstance or a relationship or a struggle and we go, this has been happening for months. There's nothing fast and flashy about the resolution. And so we feel out of control and like we have no power. I don't have in my tool belt something that can rectify my problem, my struggle right away. I don't have fast or flashy. I can't see how it's going to work out and it's not happening right away. There's no power. I have no power. I'm out of control. There's nothing I can do about this. Maybe I'm hopeless. Maybe I feel like God's not around. So why would someone have to write to a bunch of Christians, hey, I want you to make sure that you know that you're enlightened to, that there's a revelation apocalypse to the power at work towards you because the power of God doesn't often look like what we're expecting because we're expecting oftentimes fast and flashy. And so when we don't get fast and flashy, we think that there's no power here. The people that he's writing to probably have no political power. The early Christian church we see, if anything, was oftentimes terrorized by governments. They weren't the government. They didn't have any sway. They didn't have power. They were persecuted, not powerful. They didn't have any military power. They didn't have an army. A lot of people expected Jesus was bringing an army, and then Jesus does not bring an army. And people went, what kind of Messiah is this? We were expecting powerful. What do you mean? Fast and flashy. We were expecting swords and spears and horses. We can see those things. And they make a quick, fast effect. Most of them didn't have social power or economic power. Writing to people, again, that oftentimes were under persecution. They weren't the top of society. They were at the bottom. That's who you have to remind has power, isn't it? Because they don't think they have any. There's nothing fast and flashy about what they have. So then we got to figure out, well, is this actually, like, you can't just say it. There's got to be something to back it up. Well, where does this power come from? And that's why this passage is so powerful. Because again, a lot of people are going to look at Jesus and therefore the followers of Jesus and say, you're not powerful, your leader's dead. The cross is not powerful. The cross is defeat. That's why the Romans executed people on crosses publicly. 
They did it, and they didn't do it for average criminals. They did it for people who had a following. And the reason why they put people on crosses publicly is to say, your leader is not powerful. Stop following him. He's dead. We killed him. Look, he's on that cross. He cannot solve your problems. He's not the leader. He's not in charge. And so now you have a bunch of people after the death of Jesus following Jesus. And here it's, now I want you to know that there's power. Because this isn't fast and flashy. The cross is not fast and flashy. In fact, it looks like defeat. It looks like the opposite of power. It looks like defeat. So how could we go on? How could we move forward? Why would we follow Jesus in a world where we already know that we're out of control? Why follow one that is dead? Well, because this power was worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So we start with the resurrection. He's not actually dead. And you can go into all the early manuscripts of eyewitnesses and people who saw him alive and touched him and, and, and went to their death claiming that he was resurrected, that they saw him and experienced him. Not that they made it up. Most people wouldn't go to their death for something that they made up. But Jesus is resurrected. And then we go into something, because a lot of Christians talk about the death of Christ on the cross, the resurrection of Christ. Something we don't always talk a lot about is what's really important, the next part. And if we're going to take the power part and translate it, this is really crucial. It's the ascension. So not only was Jesus crucified, that looked like defeat, but he was resurrected. Now we're starting to get into the power. And then He was seated by God, his Father, the Father of glory, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named. Now, do you get the repetition again? You could have just said, you know, he's above everybody that's powerful, but instead, let's just list a whole bunch of superlatives so that we get there. Everybody who rules and is an authority and a power and dominion, and every name that is a name, think of a powerful name in the name of Jesus, is higher than that name. Yeah, but what about the name of this religious leader and this political leader and this military leader? Yes, all of those names. Jesus' name is higher than those names. He has ascended to the highest place in the heavenly realms, which means he has power which means all the fast and flashy that we think is really powerful in our world, that we think runs how we're going to live and how we're going to live collectively together and how the world is going to go, none of those authorities' powers are as powerful as Jesus. Jesus is at the right hand of God, which means if there is a God who has created this entire universe and who has ordered how it ought to work, then the way of Jesus is very powerful for those of us who will step in and live that way. So what does that mean? True power is exercised in surrender. Jesus who would surrender in the cross. But not only that, that the uh, ascension of Jesus is his vindication. So again, if you go back and you say, okay, Jesus, we love Jesus. Man, he was doing these miracles. That looked powerful. We like the miracles. He's healing people. He's feeding people. Even brought some people back from the dead. We really liked the miracles. That seemed powerful. But then he taught us a whole bunch of stuff that seemed very counterintuitive. So his disciples at one point, a number of points actually, they argue about who's going to be in charge, Jesus? Like when you really come into power, who's going to be in charge? Can I be in charge? Some of his disciples asked him. And at one point, I love it. Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking. Because you think I'm going to give you fast and flashy. And I'm not. And so Jesus taught us all these counterintuitive ways to actually live powerfully. He taught things like, if you want to be first, you ought to be last. What do you mean? You should surrender your life. In fact, if you want to find your life, you have to lose your life. What? Yeah, it's all found in surrender. We think it's all about ascending, going up and up and up, but it's actually about descending. It's about surrendering. It's about giving up your power for other people. 
Let me give you a few examples. You can find this all throughout, the, the counterintuitive things that Jesus taught. But when he was teaching, he was saying, this is a powerful life. And everybody's going to teach you that what's really powerful is having big muscles and weapons and money and position. Because in all of those things, you can coerce other people to do what you want them to do and try and affect the world the way that you want it to be in a coercive way. And you think that's power. But do you know what real power is, Jesus will say? Giving up control instead of seizing control. Think of this. A rich young man comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. He says, how do I inherit eternal life? Remember, this is language that is now being used in Ephesians, that we have an inheritance, being part of the kingdom of God. I want to be part of the kingdom of God. So what does that look like, Jesus? And all we know about this guy is that he's rich. Jesus says, follow all the commandments. And he says, I followed all the commandments. And he says, great. And then Jesus says, take all your money and let's go, let's go bribe some officials. Let's go uh, lobby the government. Let's take your money and build a really big flashy building so that people will be attracted to the ministry and it'll be so much fun and great and wonderful and flashy that everybody will want to follow me and that's how we're going to change the world. But actually Jesus said, okay, now go sell everything that you have and come follow me. But with money, like you might have thought Jesus would say, finally, I got somebody with her money around here. Well, think of all the things we could do with this money. Money is power. But he says, actually, sell your money. We won't need that. Come follow me. Let's go. Come follow me. That's going to be a powerful life. Because generosity is more powerful than greed. So let's go live that out. And let's trust that God provides everything for us. Sell everything that you have. You don't have to be defined by your money anymore. You don't have to think that's what's going to lead to a powerful life and come follow me. Totally counterintuitive because so many of us think money is power. People with money can get what they want and fast and flashy. Second uh, example. From uh, Matthew chapter 9. Uh, and we might talk about some of the religious people. Uh, the religious people have a lot of power. You know where a lot of religious people get their power or wield their power from? Guilt. Judgment. You must do all this. We have to get everybody in our synagogue, everybody in our church, everybody in our, our, our religious community to agree to the same amount of, of behavioral and whatever. And you got to stay in the box and you got to live this way. And if you do, that's okay because we can control your behavior. This is what we're comfortable with here. So fit in our box. Think what we think. Do what we do. And if not, we can powerfully heap guilt upon you, judgment upon you, kick you out. Whatever it might be, we have this judgment. And Jesus got in so much trouble because, because he, he basically wanted to show the religious people over and over that you can't control people that way. I mean, you can, but that's not a way of positive transformation. And so one day Jesus is talking to a paralytic, somebody who's paralyzed, and he says, I forgive your sins. And the religious leaders go, that's blasphemous. You don't have the authority. You don't have the power to forgive this man's sin. Because we're the religious system, and only God can forgive sin, but really the subtext there is, and we have a system by which we can control people through guilt and through judgment and through, you have to be like us in order for God to love you. Jesus, you can't just go, and you know, Jesus, he didn't just forgive people, which they said, only God can do that, you're blaspheming. He told his disciples, you can go forgive people too. And if you lose people, then they're loose. And if you, if you bind them, they're bound. Go, have this ministry of forgiveness. It's amazing. The religious leaders hated that because they like control. We have a system that helps us to be in control of what people do and who's in and who's out. That makes us feel in control. So then Jesus goes and he forgives this guy who's paralyzed, and all the religious leaders go, you can't do that. You don't have the authority. This is blasphemy. And Jesus says back to them, just so that you know I have the authority to forgive his sins, 
I'll heal this man. He says, get up and walk. He heals the guy. Just so that you know I have power, because you seem to think all power is flashy and fast. Well, I can do flashy and fast, but flashy and fast isn't what makes long-term transformation. But I can invite this guy into community by forgiving his sins, showing him that he's accepted and he's loved. He's not controlled by your religious system. It's amazing. Forgiveness is more powerful than judgment or guilt. Another one, this is one of my favorite, I've talked about this a number of times, one of my favorite scriptures in the entire Bible. John chapter 13, Jesus is at the Last Supper. He's about to be arrested, and then he's going to be crucified. It's going to look like everybody's more powerful than him, and he is going to be killed. He's going to lose. And this amazing, amazing sentence, actually, if you're reading through John, everything's moving pretty quickly until this sentence, and the narrator, as they write this, actually slows down for us to stop and really think about this. That's why I love it. And he says, during supper... So he's sitting with his best friends and he's doing communion with them and he's about to die during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. Jesus knew, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God rose from supper. So there's uh, the during supper and the rose from supper that are parallel there. During supper, the most evil thing you could imagine is happening. One of his best friends is plotting to betray him, which is going to lead to his crucifixion, and he's going to die. And when he knows this, and he knows that he's come from God, and he's going to God, that's his identity. That's his entire purpose, is everything that his father has given him to do, that during supper, this is happening. So Jesus rose from supper, and you expect the most powerful thing. You expect lightning to strike Judas. You expect the, the walls to fall down of the house. You know, you expect something to blow up here because this is evil that is being manifested. And then something powerful does happen. It says, Jesus laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel around his waist. He did what in his culture only a servant or a slave he took the lowest position and he served his friends. In the face of the worst evil, we need fast and flashy. No, you need real power. And Jesus shows that serving is more powerful than self-serving. Save yourself. Think of a million other examples. Think of the temptation of Jesus. He goes out into the wilderness and, and Satan's there and he's, he's tempting him with power taking him up to the, the highest things. All this can be yours and you can be in charge. And Jesus says, no. And you say, why? Power, power, power. Because that's not power. True power is exercised in surrender. And when Paul's writing this in Ephesians about the ascension of Jesus, that he's now above all of the other powers and dominions and authorities and the name above all names, he's saying, Jesus has been vindicated in everything that Jesus taught us when we thought that's not really fast and flashy. It's not that powerful. Everything now, if Jesus has actually been crucified, resurrected, and ascended to the, that kind of power, everything now makes sense. And all of that long-term makes sense. All of that is powerful, transformative. All of that is how the world is coming together back to rights. All of that is for you to live a powerful life. If you'll follow in the self-sacrificial love of Jesus, that is what is transformational. And you say, but I would do that. I've done that for people and it didn't change right away. Exactly. Jesus went through his whole life and they killed him. 
And that's why I think this passage is here because I want you to be enlightened because right now today you sit there and think I'm out of control and I have no power and there's nothing I can do. And Paul goes, man, I want your heart to be enlightened to this. I want the, the eyes of your heart to be open to the fact that you have great power. It just might not look fast and flashy. It might be years, might be decades. It might be a lifetime of sacrificing for other people, loving other people, forgiving other people, serving other people. But if Jesus is the resurrected and ascended Jesus, then his ways are vindicated. That's hope for today. Because you say, but I can't solve my problem today. It's It's okay. You don't have to solve your problem today. You have to trust Jesus and follow in Jesus' way. And to understand that real, true power is exercised in surrender. And surrender says, I can't fix every problem in the world. I'm, I'm not ultimately in control. I can't control other people. A lot of us need to hear that today. We're so struggling with what other people are doing and how they're treating us and what, what decisions they're making. And it's so hard for us to say, I can't control other people, but you can. I can't control my circumstances. I can't control the circumstances in the world. but I can surrender my life to the one who controls everything and shows us that true power is exercised in surrender. Self-sacrifice, love, forgiveness, service to others, service to the world. That's my role. That's what I need to do. That's our role together. What about all the rest of us? I feel so out of control. And that's the life of faith. Surrendering and saying, I'm not in control. I'll never be in control. In fact, when I really feel in control, that's probably an illusion. Maybe it's fast and flashy. Maybe at that moment, I feel like I have a lot of money. Maybe in that moment, I feel like I have a lot of muscles. Maybe in that moment, I feel like I have strong weapons. Maybe in that moment, things are going well. That's okay, but part of the life of faith is a descent to say, I'm not in control. And when we therefore get angry and disappointed and anxious and struggling, we find... Ah, the way of Jesus so often looks like we're out of control. But he's in control. I can follow him. I will follow him. And so, uh, number one, I think, if we're going to apply some of this, we say, uh, number one, we surrender control. We have moments of, I think this is what deep prayer is all about. Deep prayer is coming before God and realizing I'm not in control, but you're in control. I can rest in that. I can take a deep breath and rest right now, this minute, whatever's going on, whatever I'm out of control of. I can surrender my need to be in control. And then number two, we can realize that the most powerful things that we can do are acts of love, service, forgiveness, grace. Just the way Jesus did it. His entire life was the pace of grace, giving himself away, surrendering himself, even to death on a cross. And God, his father, vindicated him by resurrection and by ascension. And right now he is in the heavenly realms, ordering everything. And even when it doesn't look like that is transformational, faith in Jesus says that's what will change the world. My dear friends, don't be seduced by fast and flashy. I know it'd be so much easier, wouldn't it? If just tonight, everything you're struggling with, everything you're hurting, everything you feel out of control of is just gone. Man, wouldn't that be nice? Here's what's transformational. True power is exercised in surrender, giving our lives away, and trusting in Jesus, for whom it looked like everything was lost, death, but is resurrected and ascended, and therefore now vindicated.
for us to say the most powerful life we can lead is to follow Jesus in the same way and trust that in the end, all that is good, all that is gracious, all that is loving has been vindicated as we follow Jesus. So what's, what's real power? It's the cross. It's the resurrection. It's the ascension of Jesus. So now in case you need it, I will once again read verses 19 to 23 as we close as a reminder that perhaps through these scriptures, the Holy Spirit would enlighten, would open the eyes of your heart to once again see the power that is at work toward us. And so it says, may you be reminded, may we be reminded, may we know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, not only now, but in also the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so our Heavenly Father, now, after hearing this and wanting to profess our faith in Jesus, we surrender our past, present, and future. We surrender our circumstances, our failures, and our worries. And we surrender them to the one who is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and whose name is above every name, not only now, but in the age to come for all of eternity. It is in him that we trust and we find hope of our inheritance and where we find power for the life that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.